Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. First, we have Mike Davis. Mike Davis is the author of City of Quartz, Late Victorian Holocaust, Buddha's Wagon, and Planet of Slums. He is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and the Lennon Literary Award. He lives in San Diego. John Weiner started out in the 60s writing for The Old Mole, an underground weekly in Cambridge, Mass. He sued the FBI for their files on John Lennon, dating from the time when Nixon had ordered Lennon deported from the US to silence him as a critic of the Vietnam War. After 17 years of litigation, including a Supreme Court appeal, the, the government settled and released almost all of the pages that had been withheld on the grounds that they contained national security information. That story is told in his book, Give Me Some Truth, the John Lennon FBI Files. He's taught American history at UC Irvine, especially the course Politics from FDR to Obama, and is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, where he hosts the magazine's weekly podcast, Start Making Sense. His recent books include How We Forgot the Cold War, A Historical Journey Across America. He's also the author of Conspiracy in the Streets, The Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago Eight. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, the video artist and photographer, Judy Fiskin. And I just want to say a little bit about Mike and John's new book. It's called Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. And I really, I just love this uh, blurb from Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara says, this is history from below in the very best sense, focusing on grassroots heroes and struggles, a magnificent mural of the local 60s written with verve and passion by two of my favorite locals. Woo! I mean, you don't get a better recommendation than that. Um, so you guys, you got to pick up a copy of this book. It's fantastic. All right. And then joining Mike and John today, we have Aaron Aubrey Kaplan and Danny Widener. Aaron Aubrey Kaplan is a Los Angeles journalist and columnist who has written about... African-American political, economic, and cultural issues since 1992. She is a contributing writer to the New York Times opinion pages and also the Los Angeles Times, where from 2005 to 2007, she was a weekly op-ed columnist, the first black weekly op-ed columnist in the paper's history. For nine years, she was staff and writer and columnist for the LA Weekly and a regular contributor for many publications, including KCET.com, Salon.com, Essence, and Ms. Magazine. She currently serves as book review editor for Ms. Kaplan was also a regular contributor for Makeshift, a quarterly cutting-edge feminist magazine that published from 2007 to 2017. She's published two books. Her first book was a collection of essays and reportage titled Black Talk, Blue Thoughts, and Walking the Color Line, Dispatches from a Black Journalista, and was published in 2011. Her second, I Heart Obama, an extended essay about the cultural and personal meaning of the first Black American president, was published in 2016. Kaplan was born and raised in Los Angeles, though her family is originally from New Orleans. All right, and 
We have Danny Widener. Danny Widener teaches modern American history at the University of California at San Diego with a focus on expressive culture and political radicalism. He began his educational career at the Echo Park Silver Lake People's Child Care Center before studying at Berkeley and New York University. He is the author of Black Arts, West, Culture and Struggle in Post-War Los Angeles, and is the co-editor of two volumes, Another University is Possible, and Black California Dreamin', The Crisis of California's African-American Communities. He is currently completing a book entitled Third Worlds Within Black Radicalism and Interethnic Relations in 20th Century America. He is a supporter of Tottenham Hotspur. All right, so without further ado, I'm gonna bring up our guests today. Make sure they're all unmuted so they can say hello to you. And I'm, I'm gonna disappear, but if you need me, Call my name and I'll appear like a genie. All right, here we go. Well, thank you. Thank you, Maddie. It's, and thanks, thanks to Skylight. We're all thrilled to be here. I, have my, I wanted to ask Aaron kind of a preliminary question. Uh, when I told you that Danny Widener would be joining us, the historian from UC San Diego who wrote Black Arts West. I asked if you were familiar with his work and what did he say? What did I say? What did he, yeah, what did you say? I said, oh, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with his work. That's my cousin. <laughs> So, uh, but independent of that, I'm a huge fan of Danny and his work, and I have stolen from it, because, uh, you know, great writers steal, right, um, from his, his incredible work on L.A. and arts, culture, and politics. So I'm, uh, but what can I say about the Aubrey family? The, the clan is, has a long reach, John. Yes. Well, uh, Danny... What, is, I'm hearing an echo from me. Is everybody hearing an echo from me? Or am I okay? Yeah, John, do you have the um, the page open in two tabs? Do you have another tab open with the Crowdcast page? I don't think so. Hmm. Just double check for me. Now? How about now? Same. Still the same, turn this down? How about now? Is that any better? Yeah, that's way better. Perfect. Okay, so you're hearing my speakers is what's happening, my external speakers. So uh, let me ask Danny, you guys are cousins. How come your family has uh, prominent writers? <laughs> uh, I, I think I would answer that question by saying uh, our family has um, prominent survivors and prominent <laughs> people who refuse to accept things as they were. And I think Aaron and I were both fortunate um, to be A, raised by people who um, taught us examples of struggle, and two, who had the good fortune to be in a critical place at a critical time, whether that was uh, the east side of South LA or Echo Park or Venice or Inglewood. You know, um, we, I think, got to see the tail end of a little bit of the story that's charted in the book. Yeah. Um, and we're able to pass through many of these spaces um, at, at different times. And so, you know, to, to just make a point about that, in the course of writing my dissertation, 
I came across a story in the Eagle um, and it was about a cross burning. And it turned out that that cross burning was um, at a family home. It, uh, our family had moved to South Los Angeles during the war um, and the neighbors initially had not understood that a black family had moved onto the block. Um, that was a, um, a mistake that they rectified in due course. And um, you know, my stepmother tells the story of remembering the light right through the through the drawn drapes, um, and people going out the back door. You know, and so something happens when you are doing a work of history. And that work of history draws you in, you know, and you feel, I think, a different connection, um, not only to the story, but to both the protagonists and the and the bad guys um, in the story. And so I think that's kind of, you know, how Erin and I, at least I won't speak for her, but that's my feeling about, um, you know, what it means to identify as a person from Los Angeles, but more importantly, with those people from Los Angeles who um, who envision a different uh, society, you know, and a different city to boot. Yeah. Can I add something? Well, we're, uh, Aaron, you want to yeah, really add quick. something I, there? Yeah, because I'm thinking of my, my late father, uh, Larry, who died in May. Um, he moved to Los Angeles in 1942 when he was a kid, but he would go back and forth to New Orleans. But he always stressed to me that L.A. was no paradise that even though people did move here to move away from the segre you know, Jim Crow and all that, that he found in LA um, uh, just as much, um, uh, you know, racial strife and segregation that, that he left behind. There were some improvements, but not enough. And so he always disabused me of the notion that LA was, um, you know, sort of the, uh, the ultimate, you know, American dream. Um, on the other hand, nobody moved back to New Orleans either. So. Right. <laughs> There's always that tension, but uh, that's what I grew up hearing. So, yeah. Well, you know, I think let's talk about Larry, your father, for a minute. He was a famous and important writer for the L.A. Sentinel, um, yeah. you know, one of our leading black uh, weeklies. I know he didn't start there until the 80s, but he wrote something over a thousand columns. I mean, what was it? What was it like growing up in the house of such a prominent and incredibly prolific writer? Well, it's funny. My father did not say he was a writer. That was just one thing he did. He did a million things. And writing a column for 33 years was just, uh, you know, one thing he did. It became increasingly important, but he started doing it right around the time he got elected to the Inglewood School Board. And he just felt it was something, it was important to put out information to keep you know, kind of like a message board almost. He didn't, you know, he did not see himself as a, as a writer per se. Um, but he was incredibly busy at home. He was involved in a million things, none of which I really understood until I got to be almost college age because it was very, you know, he was in another age, you'll call him a race man. That's what he was. But um, I always knew what he did was important and, um, and not something that could be completed necessarily. Not some, it was work that he'd inherited from other people and that I felt I had to inherit at some point. Although I tried not to, but anyway. Um, 
but it was it was I picked up so much I became good at listening and observing and trying to figure out what was he doing and why was he so passionate what was he so intent on doing it wasn't all that clear he didn't I explain to children you know um, it was a lot to explain but I picked up on it and I absorbed it and so uh, I was fortunate that it stuck Well, we're here on the, it's the, it's the 55th anniversary of the Watts Rebellion this week. Um, and Mike has, uh, Mike, you have some new research findings to report that did not go into our book on LA in the months <laughs> before the Watts uh, Rebellion, before August, 1965. What, what have you discovered? Well, in 1965, like today, there was an underground jungle of neo-Nazi and racist groups. And the National States Rights Party, founded by J.P. Stoner, the notorious church bomber, bomber in Birmingham, uh, sent organizers uh, out to the West Coast. And uh, they established a chapter in San Bernardino and immediately made links to the Klan, the, the largest Klan. group of which seemed to have been in the Antelope Valley, and to an underground terror organization known as the California Rangers, which operated out of the American Legion post in the little city of uh, Signal Hill. And they joined together in some conspiracy, the dimensions of which and the goals of which are, are unclear. But at the end of March, 1965, uh, an informant told uh, officials that the local head of the National States Rights Party had a weapons arsenal stashed away in a city of industry warehouse. So they raided it and the cops were just amazed to discover 373 machine guns uh this is you know more more automatic weapons probably than a normal uh, uh regiment or maybe even army division uh has i haven't been able to uh explore this story much beyond that except to say that uh probably the august rebellion uh occurred might have occurred might have provoked uh some kind of murderous attack by these groups after the rebellion a number of black people just random black people including a a, a sailor uh were shot and murdered on the streets by white vigilante guys which may be uh part of this if we just say well i, I have only one one Question about this is uh, no. Let me. You were let supposed me just ask to Danny, stop. Danny, hold, hold. Danny, hold up your finger. Now, <laughs> the family epoch that our two other guests share should be a one thousand page epic novel, and I'm trying to get Danny to write it because at <laughs> least his finger, I don't know, your nose, whatever, is native California. 
uh, an ancestor, a great-great-great-grandmother who escaped the genocide of California Indians uh, back in the 1850s. So yeah. Danny can claim to be Californian for, I don't know, 10,000 years, Dan? <laughs> wow. Yeah, we were just talking about this. Uh, you know, the times we live in generate a profound fight or flight response. And uh, before we began the session, we were discussing uh, the conditions under which one person determines which of those two reactions is the most um, reasonable in any given um, moment. I wanted to, to say something, I guess, following both from the, the first point you made, um, John, and also what Mike said about vigilante violence, which is, um, for me, one of the real strengths of the book um, in terms of telling this story about Los Angeles in the 1960s is um, one that Watts emerges as a kind of detonator, not only for a new moment of black radicalism, but for um, as a kind of lodestone for all of these other aggrieved communities. Um, and we see both the rise of this kind of horrible police militarism in response that really touches all of these communities, there's a flyer for um, a demonstration mostly of gay and lesbian activists after the police attacked the black cat. And it announces these simultaneous demonstrations in, in, you know, on Sunset Boulevard, in Venice, in Pacoima, in, in Watts, in East LA, right? So there's this whole like um, islands of little resistances to um, to police violence, and it's so resonant with the moment that we live in. And, and the other thing I think that I really took out of it is, you know, I, all of us have, have students, and one of the confusions for people living in America is this idea of liberalism as a kind of progressive force. And there's so much wonderful material in, in this book about the extent to which people really pushing against liberalism and even you know she doesn't make it in her moment is earlier but a woman like charlotta bass who runs as a she's a vice presidential candidate in the 19 1952 right and, and we have this onslaught about kamala harris as the first black woman vice presidential candidate there was a black woman vice presidential candidate 75 years ago you know um so i just think there's so much in here for people to understand both about our own histories of resistance, but also their connections to the kinds of struggles that we're, we're encountering today. And I want people to, to, to kind of read with that in mind. Well, I wanted to go back now to the Watts Rebellion. It is the 55th anniversary this week and although it now seems like a kind of an incredible lodestone in, in all of LA history, at the time it was a complete shock to the conventional wisdom of the mainstream media, which had defined the American racial problem as something that was located in the South. It was defined as segregation. There was a heroic struggle against segregation, you know, SNCC in the sit-in movement, and then the Birmingham campaign that Martin Luther King and his associates directed with the fire hoses and the police dogs. And, uh, and then there was Mississippi Freedom Summer and, you know, the murders of uh, Schwerner, Cheney and Goodman. 
Uh, and then the Selma to Montgomery march and, you know, John Lewis at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then, then in the August of 1965, Congress passed and President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and this was considered to be the end of the story. The black people have won. You know, five years of struggle have have led to this this victory. And then one week later, Watts explodes in this rebellion. And, uh, you know, the pundits are completely dumbfounded and they have to ask, what did we miss? You know, and I think our book is about everything that they missed, the unemployment, the housing segregation, the the horrible violence of the LAPD. But when the, the, when the rebellion began, I know, Mike, you were not just living in in LA, you were in the streets of South LA. Um, what was it? What was it like to be in the streets of LA when the Watts Rebellion was starting? Well, uh, my presence in the streets was hardly heroic. What I was actually doing uh, was trying to buy an electric typewriter for the SDS office I just <laughs> set up, and uh, so I was up in. Uh, uh, Hoover, Hoover, uh, talking to looters, and you could just give an order, and I got the electric typewriter. But I was with my close friend, actually my older brother almost, to whom I dedicated my share of the book, Levi Kingston. Just Levi spent 60 years out there organizing in, in uh, uh, the community, and we were in the street together. And somebody from Fraternity Road, USC, took a shot at him, missed him by about a foot. I don't think they were trying to scare us. I think they were trying uh, to kill Levi. But the first couple of days, remember it happened on a Wednesday night. And then the next day, everything seemed to be back to normal. And it was only later, starting the af afternoon, uh, and partially due to inst more instigations by the cops, uh, that it turned in, began to turn into rebellion. But the first couple of days were uh, carnival-like. There's, you know, talk about a festival of, uh, of, of the uh, press. I mean, it's just incredible joy of people coming together, gangs that had uh, hated each other, you know, for years, you know, gathered around, uh, there's a famous photograph that's gathered around an overturned postcard, and they're all flipping off for, you know, Watts and, uh, uh, you know, Westminster and uh, uh, the, other, the other gangs. The point we try and make of the book is that not only was the rebellion inevitable, but it was also necessary. The 34 people who died in the course of the rebellion, uh, well, includes two cops who were shot by other cops, uh, <laughs> a friendly fire. They were mostly, you know, people just murdered in cold blood by the police or the National Guard. The first National Guard unit to respond was a Glendale unit of the National Guard. Glendale was a sundown town. If you were black, you better be off the streets by 7 o'clock or you were going to be arrested or worse. And this unit had been secretly trained in riot control. And when they left the armory in London, there were 500 white people cheering them on, you know, go wreck mm. demonstration, put these looters, uh, uh, looters down. And two of the people who were killed 
uh, were just Chicanos, because once in those days, and, and even more, I guess, today, uh, it's always been uh, a Latino as well as Black uh, community. And they were just driving down the streets, and they got blown away by the National Guard. A young Japanese-American guy got killed. So this is all tragic, but the result of it was a feeling of exhilaration in joy and unity and above all the demonstration of strength, of power. And this lay behind uh, what Danny has written so uh, eloquently about uh, the Watts Renaissance, but it also created the basis of unity that later turned into one of the most interesting uh, experiments in LA's radical history, which is the formation of the Black Congress the next year after the murder of a uh, black motorist named Leonard Deadwadler and uh, the struggle that followed that. And the Black Congress was exceptional. It had the planters in it, the S organization of Ron Karenga, Che Lumumba Club, uh, my friend Levi's Freedom Draft Movement, and uh, the Community Alert Patrol, which had been set up by Brother Crook, Ron Wilkins, uh, who taught for years in uh, Santa Monica High School, I think, or college, I can't remember. But he was a, a, a key figure. And this became a model, actually, for the Black Panther Party. They would just drive around in cars, clearly saying who they were. And if a black person was stopped by the police, they'd pull up a discreet distance behind and observe. It drove the police absolutely uh, crazy. And you can only imagine how we would understand those days now if we'd had cell phone cameras back mm -hmm. in 1965. So, uh, Aaron, you grew up a couple of decades <coughs> after all this, but in I a very, you know, politically to what uh, Mike said. conscious household. What was what did Watts mean to five. you when you were growing up? My, husband, my late husband, who was white and lived in the valley, said he remembers clearly. He was 10 or 11 at the time, and he said, the local news reports basically said there were armed bands of Negroes coming over the 101 into the valley. And that's how people, a lot of people saw this event, you know, marauding black people. Um, but uh, my father was in the streets at the time and he was a parole officer for the county. But after 65, um, he became, uh, he was tapped to be on the newly revived LA County Human Relations Commission. And he talked a lot about that Black Congress, too. And he worked his whole life to revive that in some way. And um, um, because, like you say, Mike, it was something that the rebellion inspired him and inspired him for a long time. And in fact, there's something around today called the Black BCCLA, the Black Community. Uh, Clergy and Labor Alliance, which Karenga is still on, and it's basically an umbrella group for, for people working for racial justice. And so, um, you know, I always had this idea that Watts, the event, I was only three at the time, but it was something that was overall important and uh, motivating. Although the problem is, you know, every 27, 28 years, it seems like the same issues come up, the same conflagration happens. I just wrote a column for the New York Times saying how you know, the George Floyd awakening, it's really the same incident, the same cops, the same thing, uh, the same place. 
And so hopefully we're having a, uh, as people now call it, we're meeting the moment. And I, I, I resist feeling like that's a marketing slogan and not real. Um, I'm trying to not be cynical, but um, in my mind, Watts remains that 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 jumping that that starting point, and hopefully we're circling back to it in a good way. But who knows? So, uh, Mike, they didn't have cell phone videos in 1965, but we did have a very active black press. You know, the predecessors to Larry Aubrey, the Sentinel was going strong. Um, and it was because the black press played a crucial role in the uh, initial uh, events uh, by reporting on outrages of the LAPD that white readers of the LA Times knew nothing about. Talk a little bit about what black LA learned from reading the black press. Well, the black press nationally uh, was a marvelous institution. Think of the Chicago Defender. Uh, the New Amsterdam Times, and in Los Angeles, the California Eagle, which Charlotta Bass uh, had founded, and the Sentinel. And both of them, uh, if you ever have a chance, you can, you can log on to the Sentinel, at least certain issues of it. You should read it. It was amazing. Cultural criticism, the best sports page uh, in, in Southern California and the real news. And one of the things that kind of revealed uh, the, the part of the formula, the alchemy of the rebellion was that in June, or Ju maybe it was early July. No, I think it was June. Uh, a young woman named Beverly Tate was kidnapped and raped by two LAPD policemen. Only later would there be three paragraphs in the LA Times that nobody noticed. But of course, this was extensively covered in the Sentinel and uh, uh, in the Eagle. Everybody in the black community knew about it. It was outraged. And Beverly Tate, who was supposed to testify before a grand jury and who was pregnant, later, uh, uh, a month or so after the rebellion, she died under what were called officially mysterious circumstances. Was she murdered? Uh, no way to know. But when on that sweltering August night, uh, an LAPD officer waded into what had been a peaceful crowd of onlookers uh, watching the, uh, the arrest of uh, uh, two brothers, uh, slightly inebriated, uh, one of them grabbed a black woman who simply jeered him grabbed her by the neck, spun her around, and put her in a, in a chokehold. And that was one Beverly Tate uh, too far uh, for the people, people at the scene. This is a humiliation that wasn't going to be endured uh, anymore. All right, let me unmute you. Well, um, yeah, Dan. I just wanted to echo... Um, both Aaron and, and Mike, and, um, and thank Mike for bringing up the case of Beverly Tate, because I think it's really critical. It, it illustrates two things. It illustrates first, the centrality of violence against black women alongside the violence against black men and the really um, 
critical role that vigilante violence and state violence uh, and sexual violence play in maintaining the kind of white supremacy we're talking about. Um, and then the second point about the black press is really critical because we're talking about a moment where not only do you have black newspapers, but you have black radio stations um, that are aimed at black communities that play varieties of different kinds of black music that prevent African-Americans from being conceptualized and marketed to in, in very small age-related segments, right? So you're gonna hear everything if you're a black kid and you're listening to the news and the music and all these different styles. Um, and of course the church, it's a moment where, you know, probably 95% of African-Americans go to a few specific denominations and or independent Pentecostal um, storefront churches. And so those three elements, the radio, the printed press and the church mean that you have an internal mechanism of communication within the black community that glues people together amidst all their variety and, and um, diversity. And I think that, you know, when we talk about the Renaissance, a lot of the struggle that people were waging for community control, whether that's community control of the cops, of their schools, of their workplaces, of their creative production, in retrospect, I think is a reflection. People intuitively understood what was slipping away as segregation was replaced. And I don't think we've been able as a, as a people to come to grips with the task of figuring out how to maintain community institutions in the absence of you know, legal racial restriction. And that's been a struggle that um, black people haven't been able to, to wage successfully in part because what the end of segregation did is it recast us now as a market in a different way. And what we've seen is that the independently produced institutions that we had were like any third world people incapable of struggling against market forces when they were unleashed willy nilly on us. And so I think when we think about this moment of resistance, it's critical to understand we had these infrastructural capabilities that are gone. Um, and as we think about meeting this moment, as Aaron put it, you know, the question is, to what extent can all of the institutions and mechanisms of communication and other resources that people have access to be harnessed in the way that the previous generation did so that we can have some ability to communicate without the kinds of spying and um, other kinds of impediments, I think that late 60s radicals found um, by the early 70s to be so problematic and so, um, so difficult to resist. Aaron, do you want to jump in on this? I just wanted to add something to what you said, Danny, reminding me of one of the stories I kind of followed over the years was this community, the East Side community, um, which was historically black community that my father and and your stepmom and a lot of people grew up in the sort of the racially segregated area um, around Central Avenue that held until about 1950 or so when the racial housing covenants were outlawed finally and people started moving and your family was one that moved first and caught hell for it. <laughs> um, but I remember what, you know, so that community and this is not just in LA, but everywhere, but in LA, the East side, uh, 
they they the physical space just dis, they dispersed, but they kept meeting year after year after year in the East Side reunion. And one of them said to me, talking about this paradox or this this problem of you know you lose the community because you fought for social mobility for so long and then you get it, and then you don't have that community anymore. No one would argue for segregation, right? But what do you do in the absence of that community? And the way he put it was, this was Hal Miller, um, whose, whose uncle was Lauren Miller, another famous local figure. And he said, you know, we got what we wanted, but we lost what we had. And I think that that's, that's what black people struggle with, is how to get back what we had without regressing, but you know, keeping alive or keeping, you know, not just alive, but really strong and, 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 and prominent that community, that, you know, that energy, that togetherness and that sense of, of just, you know, need for justice, which we, you know, which the marketing, the post-segregation marketing and all that really, you know, diffused and broke up and, you know, it's it's very complicated, and I started to realize it's a lot more complicated than I, than, you know, than most media discussions would have it. So, well, let, let's talk about uh, now. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter. Well, hello. <laughs> uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is the biggest social protest movement in American history. It is everywhere, not just in the big cities. It's in small towns. It's, you know, in the... Um, but Aaron, you, you wrote a fascinating uh, piece for the your New York Times op-ed page column. The headline was, Everyone's an anti-racist. Now what? Um, you start out from the point that for the first time ever in American history, millions of people have taken into the streets to to say black lives matter. Uh, but you say um, this is you call it a baseline for progress rather than, you know, uh, uh, a conclusion. Tell us about your argument here. Aaron, can you hear us? Did we lose you? Did we Anything lose Aaron? Aaron? I think we might have lost her sound. Uh, let's. I'm going to write to her in the chat really quick. Okay. Anybody else want to pick up on Dan? Danny? Yeah. I'm waiting for. Okay. Can you hear me? I just want to say um, while Aaron comes back on, uh, a link between the prompt that you raised about both the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matter kind of, you know, um, banner, and say that much like you guys discussed with the Panthers and with Malcolm's critical role in Southern California and with um, the US organization, that um, it's no accident that, you know, Southern California has produced people like Patrice Cullors and Alicia Argadesa and Melina Abdullah and Pete White, that um, that this kind of new vocabulary of black radicalism, which is so resonant with other communities, emerges out of the Southern California context, you know. And so I just think for people who are interested in what's happening now, it's again one reason why, you know, the 1960s is not, we're not repeating what's happened, 
but there are lessons to be learned both about how movements arose and how movements were destroyed from that moment that um, that the people who are pushing this country into a different and better place might take up. Everyone's an anti-racist. Now what? Um, tell us where you where you uh, where you go with this this striking idea. I don't know, John. That's why I made it a question. Now what? <laughs> um, well, I just, John, it, this is awful. Everything's desynchronized. Sound, image, everything's uh, 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 chaotic. Sorry, Mike. I think that's just Wi-Fi stuff. Um, can you hang in there for for a minute and see if it stabilizes? Yeah, we haven't we haven't had this problem in other uh, Wi-Fi interviews. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Just and hang in there. To, to hear Aaron. Can you hear? Can are we okay? Anything, Mike? Okay, Mike, I'm gonna close your video and bring you back and see if that fixes your streaming issue. Hold on one second, okay? Okay. Thank you. Sorry, Aaron. That's okay. So John, I just, um, it really just struck me, um, even though I, I am very heartened by, really, I'm really heartened by this moment, even if it is a total marketing ploy, and the fact everybody wants to jump on board and be anti-racist, there are worse trends, okay? Um, and maybe the people don't quite understand what they're doing, but they know it's important. And so let's just say we are, we all kind of brand ourselves anti-racist. Um, but what the point I was making with that column is being an anti-racist is wonderful, but it's really, it's not progress. It is it is the start of progress, right? Then you then we're starting from that, that starting line, that wonderful starting line that no one's, that we don't line up we've never lined up equally at. And so not to discourage anyone, but realize it is, it is the beginning of possibly playing on that, that level playing field, right? And, um, you know, it's taken that long to get to starting point, um, which is both, you know, it's a little discouraging, but at the same time, Things can happen quickly. I know we've been at this a long time. Struggle is, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but sometimes things are, you know, they build up for a long time and then they can change pretty quickly. So I'm gonna be optimistic and say they can change, they're gonna change more quickly than slowly. Um, so I don't know, uh, but if you have any answer to my question, now what, please, you know, share. Danny, where do you stand on now what? I think it's a moment for people to struggle with the need to be able to hold two ideas in their head at the same time. And so um, it was very comforting to see Angela Davis um, pen an explanation about why Joe Biden is such an atrocious candidate and reactionary human being and why she was going to vote for him anyway. Um, you know, I think that I had this conversation with my students. They're very concerned about debt. And I explained to them that there was an eight letter explanation for why their student loan debt wasn't dischargeable. Uh, and that eight letters was running for the presidency of the United States and that they should vote for him anyway. So I think that um, 
I think Aaron is right that um, the, our task is to make sure that being an anti-racist is difficult and make sure that it isn't easy because the changes that we're trying to make in this country are profound changes. Whether we're talking about the amount of resources we use, the way that we have little children being separated from their families and caged, the way that it's unsafe for people to walk down the street, you know, that we can't trust the food that we eat. The country is rotten from soup to nuts. And so just like people were talking about, like you say, in the 60s or the 30s or other moments, it's a profound reconstruction that has to happen. And um, as Aaron says, people have made the initial statement, which is that they're willing to try. And so I think one of the challenges, again, that, um, that you can kind of see when you look at all the different struggles that you guys track is that part of the task of making a different America is for every community to discover anew what that means for them on their own. Um, and then to try to establish a dialogue with others who are engaged in the same task, right? And that's not, that's not easy work. You know, another thing that Angela said, sometimes she says, a coalition is not a family, you know? It's difficult to work with people who come from different backgrounds and have different concerns. And they say stuff that bothers you and they don't know how to talk right to you. And there's all kinds of difficulties, but through those difficulties are a different and better country. And I think that that's, the challenge that Aaron's column lays out, and it's the the roadmap in some ways that set the night on fire kind of provides. Yeah, this question, this question of um, the relationship of black radicalism to other aggrieved communities is a really big one and a really important one. I mean, you brought up the, you know, the world of immigrants who. I mean, if everybody, if any group is not an immigrant group, it's African Americans. I mean, they've you know been here since sixteen nineteen, I believe sixteen nineteen. Um, so uh, you know, and and one another thing that that we argue in our book is how important the creation of Chicano identity was, Chicanismo, the idea that Mexican American is not an um, immigrant identity like Italian American or you know Irish American or Polish American. It's not going to just kind of end up blending in and being a food tradition. Um, the people who invented the idea of Chicanismo uh, were identifying specifically the people who used to be called Mexican Americans with African Americans. We're different. We're not going to be. We're not white people. It's not going to work for us. Um, that's a very important moment that comes out of the 60s. And in a lot of ways, it comes out of L.A. Uh, I wonder, I, Danny, I know you've thought about this. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, you know, uh, Aaron, what about you, too? Either of you guys want to chime in on this? Danny, can you hear us? You want to talk about uh, you want to talk a little more about the uh, relationship? I think Aaron's unmuted. Okay. 
Go ahead, Danny. Oh, I mean, look, I think it's you're 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 dead on. I mean, I think one of the enduring images of the book you talk about um, an East Side publication showing a picture of Robert Kennedy who had come to meet with a group of uh, Chicano radicals. He, of course, had had a, a long relationship with Cesar Chavez, as had the Black Panther Party. Um, and they have a banner where they, you know, they say outside agitator question mark. I mean, you know, the, look, the Southern California is a space of overlapping colonialisms, the destruction of the indigenous, not destruction, but the seizure of the land from indigenous people. Uh, and then the secondary seizure of this land from Mexico. So you can't begin the work of understanding how Glendale becomes a sundown town, right? Unless you understand that um, we're living in a colonial state. And that bothers a lot of Californians because California is nice. The beach is nice. The food is good. The weather is cool. You know, it's an entertaining place to live. People visit you. They want to see the stars on Hollywood Boulevard. So when they tell them, look, we're settler colonialists, and it's not up to us to determine whether or not we get to stay. They get real pinching, as the Chicanos like to say about it. And so <laughs> I think that when we talk about um, what, a, what an emancipated and democratic California looks like, and let me tell you, if that turkey gets reelected in November, we might have to ask that question a lot sooner than we're planning to. Um, I think you cannot minimize the transformative role that, you know, Spanish language, Latinx, Chicano people have played in that. I mean, you guys point to Prop 187 as the moment where, you know, there's kind of a crest of white supremacy in Southern California um, and things begin to roll back. And I think that that's dead on. And I think it raises all kinds of questions in that community too, right? The, the Latino community can be the tip of the spear about producing a new California, and it can have issues of anti-Blackness within its community that it has to take up as well, right? So that whole thing of let's have two ideas in our head at the same time um, and go forward. I'm not going to use the, um, you know, the word dialectics because I don't want to get too old school to everybody, but that's what we're talking about. Too late. You used it. I know. Can't help myself. <laughs> that's <a> <laughs> I, can I just add to that? Um, I've written over the years periodically about what what became known in the media as black brown black black Latino black Latinx black brown relations, and I think you know you're right. Chicano people have a particular history with the United States. Not exactly Im they are immigrants, but you know this was Mexico for a long time for you know a while, and and yet they're you know. Um, they're sort of talked into being immigrants and being part of the whole American, great American immigrant tradition of coming here to make a better life. But if you if you follow that classic immigrant narrative, everybody's anti-black because that's you know that's how you see America. And I think that it's been you're right. I mean, it's been um, they've been sort of separated in a way from their own natural alliance with black people. Not that everybody's the same. There are different grievances, and I think that's been the worst understood and written about thing in L.A is how, in fact, black and brown people do share uh, not a common history, but certain common grievances, common living space. But there are, you know, black people have been, for example, you know, kept out of the labor market forever. 
in some ways, Latinos are the, you know, immigrant group that, that, that kind of fills in the gaps that black people were never allowed to fill in, but this is never talked about in a rational way or a non-resentful way. And every time I tried to write about this, it would just sort of get shut down. Everybody wanted to talk about, you know, having chitlins and tacos and, you know, sort of coming together. And it's just much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, one of the things. You know, we, oh. Those kinds of discussions, those multiple discussions. Yeah, but they're rare. There's a great chapter uh, in a book by a man named Vijay Prashad, who wrote a book about. Um, Black Asian relations. And he has a chapter where he's, it's called Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting. And he says, the merchant mm -hmm. is always a stranger. And what he means in a sense by that is that, you know, communities of color, by virtue of our place in the labor force, we're set up to beef with each other, you know, just like we're set up to beef with ourselves. And um, that that's one of the structures of governance, right? So to come back to this question of, what does it mean to be an anti-racist in this moment? I think part of the challenge is for people to find ways to advocate for themselves while others seeking, you know, links and alliances with other communities. It's a very painstaking and and slow work, which which I think does bring another great um, quote from the book, right? Which is the piece you guys have from uh, one of the members of the Doors, right? Where he says, you know, I don't exactly remember. Maybe you want to say it, John, because I don't have it exactly right in my head. Uh, he says, uh, you know, the seeds planted in the 60s were big seeds, and you had, it's going to take a long time for them to grow. This maybe 50-year or longer project, uh, so get out your watering cans and uh, get to work, sort of. This, this was John Densmore of The Doors. So, uh, Maddie, are you with us? Maddie. Hi, everybody. Okay, so bad news. It does seem like Mike is not coming back. Um, I'm trying to bring him back, but it's just not working. So I'm really sorry about that. And thank you all so much for being such great sports. This We've had some trouble today, but you are all carrying it off beautifully. So thank you for that. Um, all right. So we have, it looks like we have one question in the queue right now. If um, anyone else has questions, please send them in. I would love to read them to our guests. Um, and if not, you know, we hope we can uh, catch up with you in, in real life and tell you more about all, all of the things in Set the Night on Fire. Um, oh, someone wants to know how many people are here. So we have 177 people registered for this event. Wow. Um, right now there are 60 live attendees, but everybody who registered can watch the whole thing. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna read you your question here. Um, so this is from Gifford. Oh, and it looks like Danny already answered it, but I'll just throw it out to everybody. Um, Gifford wants to know, didn't the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters help carry newspapers across the country? Danny, you wanted to just answer that on? I did answer yeah, that. Yeah, just answer that, Danny. Go on. I said they did, especially the Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, but most importantly, they carried themselves. Um, and so I think that's just the other piece about information, um, you know, and to go back to uh, Larry Aubrey, you know, as Aaron said, he wrote a lot of comments, but he also talked to a lot of people. And um, one of the things that makes people really dynamic forces for change is, is that they get outside and they mix and they communicate with people 
one-to-one, you know, um, there's a particular kind of trust that's built um, when you know people. It isn't a guarantee of anything, you know, but one of the lessons that SNCC knew and that the Panthers weren't able in Los Angeles to really always take up, you know, you had to know people who would vouch for you to join SNCC. And they wa- they watched to see what kind of work you did. And if you were just a guy who had a good rap and you could talk a lot, um, and maybe you always had a little money, that didn't get you in, you know? And so the value of the brotherhood of sleeping car porters wasn't just that they could physically bring objects from place to place, but that they themselves were able to physically move at a time when the mobility of black people was a constantly policed item. And if you think about Southern California, you know, the 1930s and 40s, all the clubs are in South Central LA. So imagine a world in which if you wanna go to a concert, you wanna go to a nightclub, you're driving physically into the black community. That is policed and destroyed where, you know, Hollywood is not a place with clubs. Sunset Boulevard doesn't have clubs in the 1940s. They're on South, they're on Central Avenue. And so the police, one of the things that the LAPD successfully does is it splits off entertainment from the black community, which not only means no money coming into that community, but it means that if white people want to be able to go out safely, they go to you know, Hermosa Beach, or they go to Hollywood, and it takes 15 years before those spots, Venice, become the same kinds of sites of resistance to police violence that South LA is in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Because, you know, when I was growing up in Venice, the police didn't come down the street with fewer than four or five squad cars. They were afraid. And one of the things to understand about this terroristic, militaristic, violent police force that we have and I mean all of them, from Santa Monica to Glendale to Pasadena to LA Unified to the sheriffs, who are the worst, is that they're afraid. You know, people get, they join gangs because they're afraid, whether they join the Crips or the Bloods or La Heme or MS-13 or White Fence or Maravilla Flats or the sheriffs or the police, they join because they're afraid. But these are the only feared, fearful people who get to kill the rest of us with impunity. So that's what we're after, you know what I mean? That's what we're trying to stop. And I think um, just to give another plug that people read the book, you know, is that there's really an honor roll of heroes from all communities, all backgrounds, all sexual identities, all neighborhoods who at the same moment decided, you know, ya basta, enough is enough. And I think we're in a ya basta moment as well. Thank Ooh, you, Danny. more questions. Sorry, I went yeah, out we got a couple. No, no, that was, that was great. Um, okay, so next we have a question from Allison. Allison wants to know if you can speak more about collaboration between immigrant groups and POC against LA's special brand of racism. Who wants to start us off with that? Danny? Aaron, do you have thoughts on that question? I think I kind of spoke to it uh, already. I mean, you know, immigrant groups, that's a lot of people. Um, And in fact, uh, I think uh, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullors, isn't uh, one of the, was also co-founded Baji, the the black, um, oh God, what's the acronym? It's a black immigrant coalition. 
So when we think of immigrant, you know, Southern California, we think of Mexican and Central American, which is, you know, the biggest group, but there are lots of immigrants, of course, Asian immigrants, and it's not a, it's not a monolithic group at all. But I think that I would just, um, I'm sorry, the question is how to strengthen those ties, ties between immigrants and black people? Black Americans? Is that the question? Yeah, collaboration between immigrant groups against uh, LA's special brand of racism. I want to quote my father here, uh, probably wrongly, but um, he always said, you know, and my father was a great uh, believer in collaborations. You know, with, when he was with the commission, he started a lot of interethnic groups that were that were sort of pioneering. He started the Latino Black Roundtable. He started the, the Black Korean Alliance. None of those groups held. And he would first be the first to say that because, well, from his point of view, looking from the black lens, black, you know, we have to have our interests clear. We have to have, we have to kind of know what we're going for. And if that's not equal on both sides, if it's not together on both sides, these things just don't work. And oftentimes, not, you know, black, black people have, um, don't really have, don't, are not at the table equally, partly because they, you know, it's not, it's just a lack of that unified agenda um, and people aren't gonna have a lot of patience with that. That just has to be there and that's how people come together. It's not, people don't come together out of charity and they don't come together you know, out of, um, you know, because uh, they wanna be nice to each other. They do, but there's, there has to be something that people want together. And I think that's not clearly articulated a lot or maybe, you know, in these kinds of, in these collaborations. People, you know, they wanna make a show of, 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 of of being together spiritually, and that's cool. But what's really important is coming together over shared interests, and those have not been clarified uh, often enough. We kind of assume them, and we really can't. And so, we, part of the anti-racist work, hopefully, is you know now that we're all seeing the world, the country through a black lens, we can all better see the interests that we need to have to come together. You know, I think the the people's budget is a great example of yeah. the kind of collaboration that you're talking about. All, everybody has an interest in housing, uh, you know, solving the housing problem in LA, F affordable housing, rent control, eviction protection. Everybody has an interest in uh, supporting the teachers, better schools, getting the cops out of the schools. This is school discipline problems shouldn't be handled by, you know, men with guns. Uh, everybody has an interest in in good health care, in community-based health care that you know isn't run by a private profit-making companies, um, and and um, the people's budget is a great example. There's like what sixty different groups yeah. have put this together. Thousands of people have participated in conversations about what their priorities are. Uh, if we reimagine public safety and we reimagine the goal of government it's i think has been led lar largely by black lives matter but i think they've done a fantastic job of bringing all kinds of different groups together around the around the concept of the people's budget and they've even made a little bit of progress with the city yeah they have more than a little, more than a little i think uh danny you want to address this question or should we move on to the next one I said, go to the next one. All right. So next question is from JG. 
Um, they want to know what books have resonated with you most during this moment of the COVID pandemic and BLM movement. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I would just, um, I think this is from Danny. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, say yes. Uh, I, I would agree with Danny's choice of Robin Kelly's book, Freedom Dreams. Great book. I keep rereading Invisible Man. Okay. That's a book for all eras, all moments. Um, I read poetry by Robert Hayden. I read, uh, I read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I think that when you, in, in this moment, whatever this moment turns out to be, um, you know, books will kind of reveal their meaning. Um, classic books, but um, also newer stuff. Um, and everybody's reading, I know, going back to read um, How to Become an Anti-Racist. I think it's um, Ibram Kendi's book. But I think that just, you know, I, I'm rereading things with a new, with a sort of a new eye. Because one thing I have to say, you know, it's nice, kind of nice to, for Inglewood South Central uh, Watts to sit back and watch all the um, agitation going on in Glendale, Santa Monica, Manhattan Beach. It's almost like surreal. Like, really? Wow. It's, it's, it's kind of unnerving almost. But I think that as for me, I mean, as and I'm other black people, I have to think about how how I um, how I'm acting in the world. I have really real. If I'm honest, I I've trained myself. I've ed to, to edit myself to only say certain things, to only assume whites other people are only interested in hearing certain things. And I'm a columnist. And I'm supposed to be frank all the time. But we are also conditioned by the white supremacist lens. All of us. All of us. And so this is a new opportunity for all of us. And I. That includes me and other people who have just learned to lower our voices or modulate them or only say certain things around certain people. My father, uh, I will just just say one thing. One thing I admired about him, his interests were his interests, and he would speak about anybody to, you know, state of the black community. And I found myself in his company going, they don't want to hear that. Don't say that. You know, that's not going to go anywhere. Because And he would, but he didn't care. He He was very consistent in his interests and his passions. And I think he converted a lot of people, not by hitting them over the head, but by being it, by being very rooted in his commitment and his belief and his self image. And, I, and I, that's what I learned mostly, but we still all struggle with American conditioning, all of us. And we have to constantly check that um, all the time. And I'm, you know, so I, you know, uh, realize I need to step up as well. I would just say one one thing that could be said about the reading issue is um, maybe not so much what you're reading, but how you're reading. Right. That the point is to read things in dialogue with other people, right? And and whatever it is you're reading, if two or three of your friends are reading it at the same time, it's maybe a basis for a, a, a deeper understanding. Um, so that would be my my plug. James Baldwin. Always, always. <laughs> One other thing I think that could be said, because a few people have mentioned housing, and it's such a critical question in Los Angeles right now. Um, one thing about housing to point out is um, in World War II, when so many people came to Southern California, we built public housing. And there's no conversation right now about building public housing. Um, it's all you know how the market can solve a problem that the market created. And if you want to read something really old on housing, 
Frederick Engels wrote about the housing crisis in the mid 1800s. And he says, wow. this, this practice of setting aside a portion of market rate housing for lower income people will never work because developers will realize they want to build the most expensive housing possible in the smallest space possible to maximize how much they make. It's their job. And so one of the frustrating things I imagine about being a young person, a category I have sadly passed out of, is um, <laughs> realizing that we're caught in the same struggle. And although every generation you know, makes its own mark and strikes its own blow, the fight that we're fighting has been going on literally for hundreds of years. And it probably isn't going to end for another several hundred years. Um, but there are some things to be learned when you realize that the other side is running the same tricks on us that they've been running for hundreds of years. Um, it does kind of make you stop and think, you know, you just have to greet that recognition without cynicism and realize that um, although they recycle the same tricks, hopefully every generation we learn a little more and we go a little further down the road, you know? So one of the things that, again, you know, one of the things the women's movement put front and central was the idea that you had to challenge how every individual in a given organization or struggle was treated. And you had to recognize that the underlying assumptions you had about who should make the coffee, who should make the copies, who should make the phone calls, who should reserve the building. In other words, who actually was building the movement that that stuff needed to be drawn out into public and acknowledged and discussed. And those are lessons that I think BLM has really put front and center in its, in its mode of organizing and talking about itself. That's an advance. That leaves people feeling a different level of belonging, inclusion, and commitment than they might have felt in the 60s and 70s. A woman from the Bay Area, there was a woman named Ruth Waddy, who was an LA-based activist. And her daughter was one of the people who founded the, flat, the first black student union at San Francisco State and, and helped create the first ethnic studies program in the United States. Um, she was basically purged by the BSU, who said, we don't want a woman in charge of this organization. Doesn't look right. And so hopefully that, at the very least, is a moment we've moved past. And you can see, you know, generation to generation, hopefully we're learning and building stronger and more effective forms of resistance. Thanks, Danny. All right, so we've got two more questions, one of which is for Mike. Um, I just wanna throw this out there to see if any of you might be able to address it. Um, so this is from Armando. He wanted to ask Mike to compare the role of working class agency and popular movements in the 60s and today. No, that's a Mike specialty. <laughs> I mean, I would just say, and then we can leave it, hold on for the wave of strikes. It's not going to, you know, it's already begun, but it, it will accelerate when the economy for working people begins to turn slightly around. Um, people are afraid right now, and people who are afraid oftentimes are concentrated on survival. But, but this moment will end, and then there will be a massive upsurge in on the job, point of production kinds of demands, for sure. I'll just say really quick that 
the working people, that group has really changed since the 60s. Uh, the middle class, as you know, we all know, has gotten smaller and smaller. And the number of people who are just working, just, you know, in the, because they have to, um, the, uh, you know, there's a lot more of them. Uh, and it's taken a while to unify their interests. But, I mean, you know, the whole movement, like, you know, McDonald's workers to get $15 an hour, um, which had some success. I mean, living wage. The whole living wage movement across the country, which all teachers, but mostly it's those those low wage workers, is a sign that you know it. There are those workers across demographics, age, demographics, color. You know, mo still mostly people of color, but there are a lot of white working class work and, and lower. I guess what poor? We don't like the word poor in this country, but poor people. There's a lot more than because of this huge wealth inequality. And it's just at a really critical point. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll have a lot, as John Lennon would have said, a lot of working class heroes. We need them. John, anything to add or should I move on to the next question? Let's All right. Okay. So last question is from Darren. And I think this kind of piggybacks off of the, the question I just asked. Can you say something more about the way the Watts Rebellion sparked different reactions from ruling class and poor and working class? What does it say to our moment now? So that's a really great question. It could be answered a lot of different ways. And the first way I thought about answering it was maybe specific to Black Los Angeles. But I'm gonna avoid that and say, one thing that hasn't come up in our conversation yet tonight, today, is Vietnam. And in the early 60s, the American ruling class believed, at least its dominant section, which were, which were liberals, they thought, we have enough money to fix this country and to rule the world. And what Vietnam taught them, and what Dr. King pointed out to them before he was murdered was, uh, you know, he said, every bomb that explodes in Vietnam, ex that's dropped in Vietnam, explodes in the ghetto. America could not police the world and elevate its poorest citizens to a human standard of living. And when forced to confront the choice, it decided to, to murder the Vietnamese. Today, I think we may be seeing that we don't have enough money to police the world to solve a pandemic and to send goon squads into the streets of every major American metropolis. There just isn't enough cash. And so everybody from the, the, the unnamed poor, as Aaron mentioned, to the billionaire president realizes that we don't have enough cash to do anything. And so to come back to the people's budget, a budget is a moral document. Now this country morally has to decide where, you know, to put its money where its mouth is and who will survive. That's the question of this moment. Who among us will survive? You know, I've been thinking about the Watts um, decade in sort of longer term than just the, the the five days of the of the rebellion the the nonviolent direct action civil rights campaign in LA for the years three or four years before that and then the black radicalism of the of the three or four years that came after Watts with the Panthers 
uh, Angela Davis, Ron Karenga. And what strikes me is that I think Black Lives Matter today is a whole world better than the movements we had uh, in the 60s. They are more unified. They are not divided by factionalism and personal rivalries. I mean, if you remember in the late 60s, there were these terrible splits, both on the black left and on the white left. The, you know, the us people ended up killing two Panthers at UCLA. Uh, in SDS, one faction was trying to expel the other faction. Black Lives Matter has been around for seven years, and they have not had any of those experiences. I think partly is because it's a movement led by women, uh, women of different generations. Um, and they've been, of course, incredibly more successful than anything we did in the 60s. So my conclusion is what, what does today's radical movements have to learn from the 60s? I think they've already learned it and they've gone so much farther that, uh, you know, they don't have to learn the lessons of the 60s. Mm. Yeah. I would say too, Black Lives Matter is, yeah, it learned the lessons of the 60s and it's a movement that's both philosophical, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, which we've been saying for four, hundreds of years, but, you know, and it's tactical. Like, you know, they always went into white neighborhoods because Melina said, Melina Abdullah said, you know, you go take that mess. We don't need that message in black neighborhoods. We know already. I mean, you know, everybody, like my father, everybody needs to hear this. Let's go and spread, you know, let, let's let's branch out. And so I remember their first, their first march in Beverly Hills and those people didn't know what to do. They just kind of sat there inside of a cafes and were shocked. But the, 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 so they started this this campaign of not just going, not just of course addressing police brutality and murder, but also convincing people that you really need to see this country through this lens. This is number one, not number five, not or you know somewhere when I get to it, I'll get to it if I get to it. But it's it's prime it's it it it's primary. And they, I think that is that is broken through. I think it's not. It wasn't just a sudden moment where people woke up with George Floyd. They've been building this message, and pushing this message for years, and it didn't seem popular at some points, but but it was having an effect. And I still marvel when I go down. You know, I live in South. Well, I don't know where I live. I live in Inglewood, which is the South Central of South Bay. But anyway, when I go down west, too deep into Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, and I see people with signs "Black Lives Matter." I know, you know, I've never seen that before in any way, shape or form. I think back to 92 when, you know, the last eruption and really it was white people outside of this movement kind of scratching their heads going, what, why are they tearing down their buildings? You know, what's, what, what's going on? It is completely, that has changed. Nobody's asking that question really. And we are all black and we're all looters and we're all upset. And, you know, um, which is why Trump's, uh, message of everybody, you know, these are all thugs, just makes no sense. Um, uh, or it makes perfect sense. <laughs> One of the two. So I think we're at a much better point in terms of a movement. You're right, John. All right. So that was our last question. I just wanted to ask if um, any of you have some last words or last thoughts you want to share with our audience before we say goodbye. I just said my last thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. Danny, Aaron, anything? 
Well, I'm just sure. going to repeat. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell everybody out there what I told Danny before we even started this conversation, because Danny was talking, was saying things are really, I mean, even though we have some encouraging movement, things are so broken in this country and, and unpleasant to say the least that he was, he was contemplating leaving the country. I've heard many people say this, but my answer is like, wait a minute, this is my, you know, but we have to fight for it. You know, um, I, I don't want to go to Paris like John Baldwin did. I don't like Paris that much, but anyway, <laughs> I think that it's worth, you know, this is an experiment. My husband, my late husband, who was a history teacher also said, this is an experiment. This country is a social experiment that is hardly over. So we're sort of, you know, in the middle of it somewhere. And this is a critical point and we can't just kind of shrink from it. Although it is very tempting to, because we're so used to things being convenient and things working out and rebooting just on their own. It doesn't work like that. And even I'm having to learn that. It's not something I enjoy, but it's part of the experiment. Danny, anything else to add? Yeah, no, just an agreement and, um, and a word of thanks to everybody who uh, participated. Um, a thanks to John and Mike for inviting me, to Erin for, um, for all her thoughts and um, comments, and uh, to everyone all the way around. Yeah, just to keep yeah. the faith and see you in the streets. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you all so much. What a great discussion. And um, thanks to Mike out there in, in cyberspace. We really appreciate you all no. making time and, and rolling with our weird new virtual platform. Um, that was that was a very worthwhile conversation. So thank you for bearing with us. Um, thanks, all right. All right. So let's let's wave our goodbyes and we'll end the conversation and we'll uh, catch you on the flip side. Hopefully we can do this again in person. All yes. right. Perfect. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.